0: We are uh, finishing the series on the One Anothers, and uh, it's been a great time together, and we're going to kind of wrap that up today. However, I just want to show you something. Before church, somebody came to me, and they gave me this, this beautiful tray. It's strawberries covered in chocolate, and more chocolate and more chocolate. Somebody saw me carrying this and they wondered if I was going to share with you today. Uh-uh. But if I could, I would pray over it and we would multiply it and it would just be uh, spread around if we could. Actually, there's a, there's a little bit of a story behind this. The person who gave this to me missed church last week. And so the new rule at Pathway is when you miss church... I am so looking forward to next week. Well, as we finish our series, um, I, I'm really, I'm really today, I have to tell you, I'm really passionate about today. I, I hope I can even, I hope I can even get this done. You have to remember, my, uh, my life in ministry has not been spent in traditionally minded churches. And by that I mean, I um, mean, We've planted churches both here in the U.S., we've planted churches overseas, we've worked on, in, in five continents sharing the gospel, we, we've just, our, our ministry has been so different than, than many, and, and this message today just, just kind of lights my fire, so I, I, hope, uh, I hope I don't offend anyone if I get a little bit passionate today. So here's the thing, if there was one question that we could ask people, and they would do it. This one question could could kind of could really change the world. And the question, if we were to look at this question in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 4, the question was something like this. Am I my brother's keeper? If we were to ask a similar question from the New Testament, it would be found in Luke, and it would be, ask this way, who is my neighbor? Now, here's what's interesting about both of those questions. In each instance, one in the old and one in the new, the person asking the question was trying to avoid responsibility. In in Genesis chapter 4, you remember, that's the story of Cain and Abel. And if you know the story, well, you know, Adam and Eve had, they had Abel and they had Cain and and there was this conflict between the two brothers. That's never happened before, has it? There was this conflict between the two brothers and, and I don't know what happened. The scriptures do not tell us what happened to make Cain get so mad with his brother that he killed him. I don't know what it was. I have a brother and I have suspicions but that's for another day. But Cain offs his brother, and then God comes to Cain, and, and, and God just, I'm just, colloquially speaking, God just says, uh, hey Cain, where, where's your brother? And instantly, Cain knew something was up, and he, and he says, who, what, 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 what? Am I my brother's keeper? In the second story in Luke, It's a story of the the Good Samaritan. And in this story, the questioner was a lawyer. I so wanted wanted to insert a lawyer joke. But I'm not. (laughs) Insert your own joke. The lawyer was trying to, you know, he's asking a very precise question. Here's what I've learned in life. The two people who ask the toughest questions are lawyers and counselors. I hope to never see both, except I live with one, so I guess that won't get me out. He's asking this question, who is my neighbor? Because he wanted to avoid responsibility for anybody who wasn't like him. Now, both of those questions have some deep lineage In the scriptures, in fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In in the Old Testament, when, when a verse ends with this phrase, I am the Lord, that's like putting a big, big exclamation point behind it, meaning you better do that. In the New Testament, the scripture reads something like this. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we look at those scriptures of loving your neighbor, of, of, of caring for one another, there are many ways in which we can do that, but this morning our scripture comes from 1 Peter, and it offers just one suggestion <coughs> on how we can do this. 1 Peter 4, 8, you heard it read already. Let me just read two verses again. It says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And then he gives the suggestion. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans says it a different way. It says, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. In the Romans text, it literally means to pursue the love of strangers. Strangers. You see, this idea of brother's keeper, this idea of of a neighbor is not so much about who lives next door to me, catch this, but it's who lives within the sphere of my influence. Yes, it includes the neighbor next door to your right and to your left, behind you and in front of you and down the street. But it includes the neighbor who shares the cubicle next to you or the training bed next to you, or wherever you happen to be. It's the, it's the person that when you walk in to the local Panera and they greet you and, and they serve you, that's, that's your neighbor. It's the people that we live with, that we live around, that surrounds us. That's our neighbor. And what if, what if Jews and Palestinians could see each other in a neighborly way? They live next door to each other. But what if they could see each other in a neighborly way? What what if North Korea and South Korea, who once were family, what if they could come together? What if the KKK and Black Lives Matter, what if they could learn to see each other as their neighbor and their brother? You see, this text of Scripture that that we're reading from 1 Peter and, and really from Romans and other texts, written by Paul, was, was very important because you got to remember the church lived in hostile times. In fact, in those days, hospitality was not just a good idea, it was a survival tactic. Christians traveled around the Greco-Roman world, and as they were traveling from place to place, often just because of their faith, they were targets. And by the way, the month of November has been the month to to pray for the persecuted around the world. Did you know that there are more Christians dying today for their faith than at any other point in the history of the world? It's amazing. We read about it back here in Paul's day, but it's more true today than ever before. See, hospitality was important then because a person traveling around that Greco-Roman world who who was often a target of persecution and suffering, they would go to the home of another believer and that believer would would receive them in. And when they received them in, they would give them food, they would give them protection, they would give them a place to sleep, they would would give them monetary resources if they needed, they would provide information about go this way to avoid trouble or go that way. They They would provide these things that were needed. And when we live in hostile times, it's easy to turn inward than to look outward. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's workmanship, that we're created to do good works. So our focus cannot just be inward with hospitality. Our focus has to include this sphere of influences, this outward approach, this outward posture towards those that we live with. In fact, Jesus told us, he said, when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind. And when you do that, you will be blessed. So let me ask you another important question. What if the word neighbor became more than a noun? What if the word neighbor Became more than a noun. What if the word neighbor became a verb and we and we changed it to this idea of neighboring? Maybe it's the art, not the science, but the human art of neighboring. What would this look like? Well, we know that Jesus went to the home of Zacchaeus, and so he practiced it. We know that Peter went to the home of Cornelius. And he was practicing it, but how can you and I practice this? So, for the next few minutes, here's what I want to do I want to do something a little different. For the next few minutes, instead of giving you the five habits of hospitality, all I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to tell you some stories. And in these stories, here's what I want you, and they're all different. They may seem random, but they come together. Because all of these stories present a picture of hospitality at various different levels. So on the screen in a moment, you're going to see pictures that represent these stories that maybe it'll help you to remember what these stories are about. So so here's story number one. 1,500 years ago, there was a saint whose name was Saint Benedict, and in those days, uh, Christians were getting together, and they were forming these, these orders. We, we think of it as a, as a Catholic invention, and, and while the Catholic church still holds these orders today, it was, it was really begun in, in the Christian church. And so these, these saints would come together, and they would form these orders, and, and often monasteries surrounding them, and they would write these things called rules. Now, the rules were really a way of saying, this is the way we operate as a Christian community. So 1,500 years ago, Saint Benedict created these rules. And and in his monastery, there was one position that was considered very important. The position was known as that of a porter. A porter. A porter had a very clear and specific job. One job. The porter had one job. That's all he had to do. That'd be a great job description. One job, just do this. You know what his job was? His job was to open the door. One Benedictine writer once said that the way we answer doors is the way we deal with the world. Now, this porter had very specific instructions. He had a cot or a bed that was very near the the front door of the monastery, and that's where he would sleep, that's where he would stay. And when anyone would come up to the door and would knock on the door to the monastery, his job was to jump up as quickly as possible because he was placed as close as possible to the door. He was to jump up, he was to go to this door, and he was said, with all the grace... And friendliness and welcoming of Christ, he was to greet the person on the other side of the door. Now here's what is so amazing about this job. As soon as someone knocked on the door, the porter was to reply, thanks be to God, your blessing please. And then he would open the door. Here's what's amazing. There was no peephole in the door. There was no sidelight. There was no ring doorbell. There was no security cameras. Do you get the image? So here's someone on the other side of the door. The porter's on this side of the door. And the porter is supposed to open it, not knowing who is on the other side. The way we open doors gives us a perspective on the way we live our lives. My wife and I recently... uh, Moved into a, a new home, and, and we, ha- we do, we, 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 have a, we, ha- we have a smart home. Do you have a smart home? I have a smart home. We have a ring doorbell. I've always thought it was just kind of, you know, I was like, whatever. Now that I have a smart home, I want a smarter home. <laughs> I could say, Alexa, do this or do that. You know how nice my wife is? This is how sweet and nice my wife is. When she gives Alexa a command, she says thank you afterwards. (laughs) That's how nice she is. She's just so sweet. We have this ring doorbell. So we're here in Vero. Our house is is back in the Republic of Texas. Anytime someone comes to that door, I see them. Now, there's one problem, though, because my sweet wife... I say she was sweet. My very, very sweet wife. For for fall, she hung a scarecrow on the front of the door. And every time the wind blows that stupid scarecrow, my phone goes off. I'm not so sure my home is all that smart after all. But do, do you see the point? Here's the porter. Someone's knocking on the door. We don't know who's on the other side. But he opens it with all the grace of Christ. Keep that in mind. Another interesting little story. I said these don't always connect in a direct line. You see on the screen, I think you'll see there, you'll see a picture of a waffle house. I like waffles. You like waffles? Has anyone ever had a waffle house waffle? I don't go very often, but when I go, I get waffles i love waffles waffles are good (laughs) time magazine did a uh, time magazine did a little uh, you know all kinds of crazy stuff happens time magazine published an an article recently on the 240 reasons to celebrate america i thought that was kind of a, a cool idea did you know that waffle house is number 77 on why we should celebrate america I did not know that. Did not know that. I also learned something else in the article. This is a little known truth. That there is this, there is this, um, uh, there is this, FEMA has a, what they call, literally, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not pulling your leg right now. FEMA has what they call the Waffle House Index for disasters. Here's what the index says. If Waffle House is closed, we don't go. Because if Waffle House is closed, something bad is happening in the town. That's, that's, the, that's the index. Kid you not. So if you ever drive by Waffle House and it's closed, you better get out of there. Because <laughs> something is happening, and you don't want to be there. So there's this guy in, uh, who had read about this in the index. He has, a, he has one of those uh, high-end, New York, fancy, smancy restaurants that when you go, you get, you know, you get like one strawberry for $25, you know, one of those, one of those kind of restaurants, one of the kind of restaurants that the first time I ever went to one of those, I ate and when we were done, we went to McDonald's afterwards, had I known I would have gone to Waffle House. So he visited a Waffle House because he had heard so much about their hospitality and their friendliness and and all of those things. His name is Daniel Hume, and and the actual name of his restaurant is Eleven Madison Park. If you're in New York, go see him. Tell him I sent you. And this is what he said. After visiting that restaurant, he said, this is a place where anyone of any socioeconomic level could go And they would learn. It would be a reminder of how important hospitality is. Because people feel taken care of there. Waffle House Index. Years ago, Cindy and I were planting a church in Australia. I want to show you another picture on the screen. And this, this, uh, this picture has an unusual connection of images. The one that's coming up right now. There we go. Now... Notice, we have, uh, we have fajitas, which I ate last week at a place over here. was really good. German chocolate cake. So if you miss service and you don't have strawberries, you see uh, on the far end, you see a cup of tea, and you see the Sydney Opera House. Now, what do those things have in common? When we were there as missionaries, um, we were starting a church. And when you're a missionary starting a church, you don't have a lot of money, so you have to figure out how in the world do we reach people who are far from Jesus. Well, we know in Australia that that uh, like like most um, um, uh, Commonwealth countries is they love tea. Now my wife loves tea. In fact, my wife is sitting down here and she has a cup of tea on her right at this very moment. That's a sickness. But she has, a, she has a cup of tea. My wife, we don't, we're still in boxes, but she has like four boxes of teacups from all over the world. I mean, how many teacups can you use at one time, right? But my wife's ministry, and it was an awesome ministry. Her ministry would be to meet women, Australian women, invite them to our house for tea. And so she'd bring out her teacups and she would serve the women, and they would sit in the, they would sit in our, in our living room, what we call the living room. She'd sit in the living room and she would serve them tea, and she would serve them tea and biscuits. And they would eat and they would talk women stuff. And, and I had my office in the house, and on, on, on tea day, I always tried to either be gone or be somewhere else in the house. But one time I just I had just happened to pop, and I kind of walked by and tried to stay out of sight and was just looking at them and they were laughing and having a good time and they were sipping their tea and eating their biscuits. But that was a powerful ministry. Women would come. Then they would invite their, their female friend. And when they'd come over and they would talk and they would laugh and They would ask her about America, she would ask them about Australia, and bonds were formed, hearts were knitted. And I remember one time Cindy said, I think it's about time. Time for what? It's about time I present the gospel. And she did. And that day some women got saved. But what does that have to do with fajitas and German chocolate cake? Well, when you go to Australia and you're an American, you're different you talk different, um, you, you know, you just, you're just different. And so we were trying to find a way, how do we connect with these, these lost people who are far from God? So what we decided to do is that we would open up our home and our home would be the hub of this new fledgling church and we would serve food that was not common to our friends and neighbors. So they would be so interested that they would want to come to her, our house just for the food, even if they didn't like us. But everyone likes Cindy. So we thought, what in the world could we serve? Well, there, can you believe it? There are very few places in Australia that serve fajita. I don't know why Tex-Mex is not in Australia, but it's not. And so we decided we would serve fajitas. And then we were thinking, we were talking to one of our friends one day and I was talking about how I wanted some German chocolate cake and and our Australian friend said, what? Ding, ding, ding. That's what we're going to serve. So yeah, fajitas and German chocolate cake does not work for us at lunch. But over there, here's what we'd do. We'd go and we'd say say to somebody, hey, we'd love to have you come to my house. We're going to have dinner. We're going to serve fajitas and German chocolate cake. And they'd say, what is that? And I'd serve and say, oh, You've never had German chocolate cake. Oh, you gotta come have German chocolate cake. Before you know it, they're wanting German chocolate cake. They would come to our house, and when they get there, we would just love on them. We get to know their name, get to know where they're from. We'd hear their story. And we get to know them. It became such a deal for so many people that that. We, we were running out of German chocolate cake stuff because you don't buy it in the U.S. I mean, in, in, the, in Australia, you, could, you have to buy the mix in the U.S. We were literally calling our supporting churches, send us German chocolate cake mix and icing. I mean, we had boxes shipped to. I mean, literally, we had boxes shipped to us because that was our ministry food. But opening the door, bringing them in, and feeding them while knowing their name and their life became very powerful for us tell you another story you'll notice in the next screen does anyone recognize this nope that's not the right one go back there we go there we go does anyone recognize that it's the eiffel tower does anyone know what country it's in quiz scared me there for a minute you need a smart home if you couldn't get it So, years ago, we were planning our first church in Orlando just, just down the street from here. And we got connected with this company called Horizons du Monde. And what they do is they send over three week, this just three week short term. Uh, groups of students they call them exchange students but they're cultural exchange they're not here to really learn about math and science and all that stuff they're they're here to learn culture to practice their language skills and they would send we we set up an arrangement with them where they would send students over and these students would come over and they would live in a family one student per family they would live in that family for three weeks and while they were there they would do the things that the family did, eat the things the family ate, etc. They would take trips with the sponsor, with, with usually our youth pastor would, would do trips for them and take them places, Disney and all that kind of stuff, because they want to see and experience America. And then they would come with their host family to church on Sunday. Now here's what's interesting, is even though France is considered a Christian country, most people in France never go to church, I mean, it's crazy. Many of these kids, these high schoolers who would come over have never been in a church other than when they were christened as a baby and they didn't remember that. Never been. So we would, we would bring this, these groups of 15 students to our church. We'd place them in homes of, of some of our most God-fearing evangelistic families. And those families, their their goal wasn't to share the gospel with the students, although on occasion that happened. Their goal was simply to share Jesus through their everyday life. It was a form of pre-evangelism, and it was powerful. There was this one trip in which a student from France was coming over, and this student, whose name was Ahmed, was from a Muslim family. So he was coming over with, with this, this group of French kids because they're all French and he's coming over. On the, on the way over, he somehow lost his wallet. Now Ahmed was, was from a poor family. And, and as they were telling me the story about his lost wallet, that, that he, his family had saved for a long time to give him enough spending money so that when he was in America, he would have the money to do the things that the other kids was doing. It was only like 300 bucks, but for them, the $300 was crazy it was an amazing amount of money to him we got back Ahmed was was telling me this story and he was in tears because he was 15 years old he was away from his family didn't have any money and he was with kids that a lot of these kids just meet meet each other for the very first time and he was he was he was just distressed by this but I learned that he was also distressed by something else he was Muslim we were Christian he didn't know what to do and Ahmed was, was, was talking to me through the translator and he was sharing his story with me and, and he didn't know if he could come. He didn't want to offend his host family by not coming to church, but he, he didn't want to offend his family or his faith by coming to church. So he was, in this, he was in this bind. And I said to Ahmed, I said, I said, would you do this? For the sake of your host family, and I'll talk to them. For the sake of your host family, would you come the first Sunday to church with all the other French kids and be there as a part of that. And you can tell your parents it was a field trip that you were going on. And then if you don't like it or if you feel uncomfortable after that, you don't have to come back. And your host family, they'll understand. And he said, okay. So that next week, he did his best to make it by without money. In the meantime, here's what we did we asked some of our members of our church family if they would contribute 10 or 20 bucks to help Ahmed have money for this trip and they did and they gave me the money and on that first Sunday morning after on the first Sunday morning after church we pulled Ahmed aside we said Ahmed we have a gift for you he's looking at me like a gift what did what did I do to deserve a gift what and I said remember you lost the money you lost 300 dollars on the plane and he said yes I said we want to Give you some money. And his face got like, wow. He didn't know what was going on. So we want to give you some money. And we ended up giving to him $400. I'll never forget this as long as I live. It burns in my memory. That very moment, Ahmed began to cry. And he said to me, no one has ever loved me. Like this. I don't know where Matt is right now, but I guarantee you he remembers that because that's what the church does. Final story, final story. It's a, it's a story of a, a woman by the name of Rosario Butterfield. Rosario was, um, at the age of 36, she became a tenured professor in women's studies at the center at the women, Center for Women's Study at Syracuse University, Rosaria and her lesbian partner were members of a universal, a Unitarian Universalist church, and she was a coordinator of uh, one of their uh, what they called the Welcome Committee, but it was really an, an advocacy group and up to this point, Rosario in, in her testimony, she says that the only Christians she had ever met were and i quote intellectually impaired. She said they were the kind of people who sent me hate mail or people who carried signs at gay pride marches that read God hates fags. She said when she was a lesbian activist and she, was, she began to, even though she was an activist, she decided that what she was going to do was she was going to write her post-tenure book on the religious right the people, she said, that hated me and did all of those things. She was writing this book in, in the early 90s, which, as you recall, was one of the heights of the AIDS epidemic. And she's in a lesbian and gay society. And, and so in, where she lived in New, in New York City, There was a lot of of other gay and lesbian folks who lived in her neighborhood. And they would spend time going from house to house to house because it was a crisis. Remember what we said about the early Christians in crisis? We tend to huddle together. That's what they did. They huddled together. These gay and lesbian folks huddled together for support and encouragement to eat together. In fact, she says that, that this group of people was her family. And people were coming in and out of these houses every day, all day at all hours of the night but she says that she noticed that her house wasn't the only one where that was happening as well there was a guy on the block whose name was ken smith and his house was like that too people were going in and out of his house almost every day at various times of the day and she says that that she learned later that he was a christian and one day he invited her to come to his house. And this is what she writes. She says, I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember awkwardly greeting my host at the door and pulling out of my, out of my bag two gifts, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. She says, I I was writing this book, and I wanted to get to know these people, but not at the expense of sacrificing or compromising my moral standards. She says, my lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered to me a lot. And I came to my culture and its values through life experience and through research and deep thinking. And she says, but I liked Ken and Floyd, his wife, immediately. And they seemed to be sensitive to that. For two years, she writes, she began going to their house. She says when she would go over there, she was loved and she was welcomed. She says there would be nights when they would gather around the dinner table and there would be Christians there that she didn't know and she prepared herself for the comments they would make and the punches they would, they would give to her body emotionally speaking. She was always scared of that, and and, and she, at this time, she still believed that, like Karl Marx, that religion was the opiate of the masses. She believed that there was something wrong with Christians, and there must have been something wrong with God because of all the things happening in the world, but she said despite all of those beliefs, there was something about Ken's God that was alive and three-dimensional and welcoming. She goes on to say this There's no way I would have ever walked into a church if I hadn't had a friendship with Ken and Foley Smith. Fast forward the story. She ended up accepting Christ. She married a man. She has a couple of kids. And now she writes for Christian magazines and Christian books. Because God did a work. But here's what she says about that. And this is what I need you to hear. She says, it was impossible, it was impossible, it was impossible for me to get to Jesus without the bridge of Ken and Floy's home. You see, in the 21st century, We have a lot of sophisticated and highly technical tools and procedures for evangelism. We have training sessions. We have online courses. We have media resources. We have seminars. We have manuals. We have methodologies. We have books. We have all of these things. But as we study the scriptures and we look at the early church and its expansion, it happened because of a home. Max Lucado says long before churches had pulpits and baptistries she had kitchens and dinner tables. Is it possible that in today's divisive controversial anxiety ridden world that that Hispanics can live in peace with Anglos that that Democrats can somehow find common ground with Republicans that that a Christian family can be on a civil friend, can have a civil friendship with the Muslim couple down the street is it possible is it possible that we are willing to open our lives up to people who are not like us whether they're gay or they're they're lesbian or they're they're any of these other things that we don't seem to like in the church sometimes? Is it possible that we could be like that porter that we could open the door and then let him come in and eat waffles? Is it possible that we could be that kind of church? see, what the early church did without the aid of sanctuaries and church buildings and clergies and seminaries, all they did was they had two things at their disposal. All they had was two tools. They had the clear message of the cross, and they had the simplest of tools, their home. Brothers and sisters, when we get around a dinner table, something holy happens. Something holy happens takes place we can see people we can get to know people we get to know their name you see in the church we see the back of heads around a dinner table we see one another in the auditorium at a church one person speaks but around the table everyone has a voice church services have clocks And I'm over. And around the table, there's time to talk. I want to say to you today, as I wrap up, that hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. And you know, it's no accident that in Latin, the word hospitality and hospital have the same result. And that's healing. When you open the door to somebody, you say to them, you matter to me. You say to them that I care about you. When, when someone invites you to their house and you go, you're saying to them, you matter to me, that, that I care about you. You're saying that I am worth the visit to that other person. I am worth the effort. You are worth the effort. That's what the church is about. In recent days, this church has had some trials. We'll never get through the trials and be a better church until we learn to be better with one another. And I'm I'm not meaning to offend or hurt anyone, but I have to say just a couple of things. Sometime, and I've learned this through, through 30 years of ministry. There are, some people in the, who are There are some people who are better by nature than those of us who are saved by grace. We have to learn to move beyond some of the things that we think divide us. We get hurt, we have to deal with it, and we have to move forward. If we cannot do that, God's people, God's church... If we can't do that, we should never expect anyone else in the world to do it. If you're not willing to do that, never complain again about a Democrat or Republican. Just quit. Don't complain about your neighbor down the street or who rides a motorcycle early in the morning and wakes you up. Just quit. Because until you're ready to change, don't expect anyone else to change. So I'm going to give you some action steps this morning as we leave. On your... uh, on your chair when you came in there was a, something that looked just like this it's a house here's what I want to ask you to, to, to prayerfully consider today every single one of us know people who are lost and apart from God I'd like for you to consider writing their name on this piece of paper and what I'd like to ask you to do is to stick it in your Bible, put it on your, uh, put it on your refrigerator door. That might be better because you'll see it more often. Pray for that person. Pray that God will give you an opportunity. Pray for an open door to share the gospel. But, but most importantly, ask yourself the question, when can I invite them to join me? for dinner that's the first thing the second thing i want to ask you to do is i want to ask you to take not just one of these that's in your bulletin but we printed up more we printed up many of these we'll print up more if we need to when you're living life this christmas season i'd like to ask you to give these away go to a restaurant leave it for your server you, you go, have some in your pocket. If you meet someone at Walmart and you strike up a conversation, give them one. Someone at work that maybe you've never talked to, give them one. The season of grace. Grace is what everybody needs. So pass these out so that people can maybe come and join us and experience that. And you've already heard about the signs. Now this may seem crazy, but when you put a yard sign in your, pl- in your yard, and your neighbors are driving down the street and they see that. First couple of times they see it, they're going to look at it and say, Oh, what's that? What's that? And they're going to see the word grace. And guess what happens? It's in your yard. You've got your neighbor on your, on your list that you're praying for. And you've got an invitation. What more do you need? You've got Jesus in your heart. You've got a house. You've got a lost person. Invitation. This Christmas, I'm going to ask you to step out of your comfort zone. I'm going to ask you to be a missionary right here in Vero Beach. Because while we're facing our trials here in this church, I guarantee you the trials that are being faced out there are probably far more serious. And I'll be honest with you, I love you. I mean, the more I'm with you, I'm loving you more and more. But I got to tell you, my heart breaks for those who don't know Jesus. And until we care more, like Jesus cared about them, we'll never be the church Jesus wants us to be anyway. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we close this service up with a song, Lord, I just ask, God, I just pray, I just pray that you'd help us to, to get out of our comfort zones and to do the things that, that, that you want. Lord, help us to open our homes and our lives to my brother to the Samaritan. Lord, help us to do this in such a way that, that we take this the this, this simple message, the most simple message of all cross, and let us use the simplest tools of all our home for your glory. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray this for these people at this time. Everybody said, amen.
1: Faith.
2: Everyone needs compassion Love that's never failing Then mercy fall on me Everyone needs forgiveness Kindness of a Savior The hope Fine. It's my need to say light and let the whole world see we sing in for the glory of the risen King. shine your light and let the whole world see sing in for the glory of the risen King. Jesus shine your light in let the whole world see for the glory of the reason.
1: pray. Jesus, thank you for conquering the grave for us. Thank you for your victory over death, sin and hell. And Lord, we are humbled that you've been with us today. You've been with us already. Continue to be with us, Lord. Spirit, move. Convict our hearts. Comfort us. Counsel us. Encourage us, Lord, to be neighborly, to be hospitable to be Jesus to those who don't know you. Lord, may we take the charge seriously uh, to invite, to think about those that are lost all around us. They're all around us, Lord. And to invite them. The worst they can say is no. It's the very worst thing that can happen. So Lord, we love you. And we want to take your message. We want to be ambassadors of of your message to those who don't know you. May we do that and cling to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. God bless you, church.